Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. everybody, Patrick Connor here, and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. It's boxing history time. My friends, we're back, which means I'm back with my dude, Eris Pina, CompuBox operator and fellow fight history lover like myself. Man, we're talking some good stuff today, Eris. How are you doing, man? Everything's good, man. It's been a little bit of a minute since we did a history episode like this, but I'm really pumped about it because this is a good subject that um, I've been fascinated about for many of years. And, you know, I've talked your ear off about it. So it's good that we get to talk about it with everyone else now. <laughs> for sure dude i remember you've you've mentioned this guy to me a number of different times and so i had to kind of brush up and whatnot but it's a it's it the there are a lot of interesting characters dragged into this story for sure a lot of characters we know about already anyway but it kind of falls under the umbrella of two, true crime but like not really per se it's just, no, just it's kinda... like it weaves in and out of just things yeah. but it's just more so just a fascinating crazy life that um that was riddled with crime, not like anything like insane, just, you know, a guy that fell on hard times and a lot of vices, but, you know, a lot of wasted potential too, you know what I mean? And just like you said, Pat, a guy that's just, um, his his name, you know, caused the start of a lot of big, you know, famous people that went on to make history in the sport and a lot of stuff. So subject today is a guy by the name of Jeff Merritt, who went by the name of Candy Slim, um, a heavyweight that was, you know, prominent, I guess, his career started in the 60s, but really caught wind in the 70s. And um, someone I've always been fascinated about, you know, because there was just a lot of like hearsay about him, especially back in the early days um, before like YouTube, before, um, you know, things of that and before any type of footage came up, you know, there wasn't even a lot of articles written about him, you know, it was more so hearsay and all like the message boards of what was about his career and what could have happened and the reasons why X, Y, and Z didn't happen. But the thing the main thing was that everybody just knew that as he was a monster puncher a guy that was scary could have had um could have done tons of damage in the division but unfortunately for different reasons some of the outside the ring influences some of them because of what happened inside the ring um he never got to reach his potential and then he disappeared that was another thing too no one knew what really happened to him you know the last time anyone really saw him was in the early 90s and there was all kinds of different theories of, oh, no, he's dead. No, he ventured back to Vegas. Oh, he's doing this. or He's homeless or whatever, yada, yada, yada. So there was just a lot of mystery to a guy like that. And of course, I'm, I'm always intrigued by things like that. So I just was always trying to find new information on him. Um, in recent years, there's been a lot of articles put out with a lot of information now out there about his past life, about the early parts of it, about his dealings in the, um, with his career, how... Um, you know, guys were going to be bringing up how he was managed by guys like Joe Lewis, how he was the start of Don King's career, how he was a stable of Angelo Dundee and Chris Dundee in Miami, how he was a part of um, intertwined with Muhammad Ali, also with a young Larry Holmes, Ernie Shavers. Like, there's so many different layers to this story. So, um, yeah, there's, a, there's, you know, a lot to it, but it's something that we're excited to talk about. And here we are. 
and it's a fun era too it it brings in a lot of it's, it's one of my favorite eras man it's such a colorful era like you talking about the 60s and talking about the 70s and all the characters involved in that and everything and everything like that so yeah man it's it's just good yeah it's it's like really uh you you have to understand this era a little bit to understand where we are now i mean i guess you kind of have to understand history at all if you want to understand where we are now with uh, in boxing, but this era especially is very pivotal in in the sports history, and of course, a lot of characters came, kind of came or rose out of this story. Um, you, like I said before, you mentioned merit to me a number of different times, and so you know, I think a couple of good sources for material as far as reading is a guy named Steve Compton who has written about Harry Greb. By the way, I didn't. Even that was a coincidence, but a dude named Steve Compton, who's written about Harry Greb um, and who's uh, also a tape collector. He wrote for the sweet science, a good three-part article that has a lot of kind of his career information in it. If you want to know a little bit more about some of the details about his fights and a few quotes from fighters, but then also he's mentioned in that Don King kind of expose by Jack Newfield uh, from a number of years ago too. Um, doesn't go into a, a ton of detail though. There's just a kind of like some paragraphs about it and that's about it. And so also, as I like to do, I tried to find some new shit cause I want it to be like worthwhile. You know, if anybody's actually trying to find out about Jeff Merritt, you know, I actually have some new shit that they don't, they wouldn't otherwise know unless they're really hardcore in the newspaper researching or something like that. So yeah, I think that it should be a pretty fun episode, but, um, you know, like a lot of, like a lot of fighters it's it starts in a not so <laughs> nice place dude it starts in a very not nice place kansas city dude kansas city missouri we've talked about a number of different <laughs> like uh fighters kind of biographically from other places like baltimore and the dc area that which were really rough in their times or talked about detroit we talked about you know uh the cronk a number of different cronk fighters who you know, just had really rough lives who came from in or around Detroit, et cetera, et cetera. And Kansas City is probably underrated in that regard. You know, you often don't hear Kansas City mentioned Wasn't among that from, um, like Brandon Rios and um, Victor Ortiz. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And uh, from there are a number of, uh, you know, other celebrities and stuff like that and sports people who have come from Kansas City, but it's a rough place, dude. That in St. Louis, there are pretty, some, some pretty, rough parts of those cities uh and that's exactly where jeff Merritt came from and you know one of the things that i was able to see that i kind of had to look for a while about because i was just curious about his parents about his family and neither of those things are mentioned a ton his dad died when he was five i couldn't mm -hmm. find out how because i i didn't see him mention how but he said that his mom had a really really difficult time raising him and his eight siblings i mean you know it's Kansas City's no joke. You got nine kids, single mother. That's rough shit, dude. And that was the kind of, you know, that basically Jeff Merritt said that because of that, he and his siblings, you know, were raised on the street. You know, they were turned to the street pretty young. And yeah, that's that's kind of a a common story for a lot of fighters, I think. Absolutely. You know, and Merritt was like um, that was mentioned in the article, even though he was big for his age, he was still like a very shy child and, you know, very conscious of the bullies and of the inner workings of his neighborhood. But instead of uh, being a person that would, you know, that shyness that would let him, you know, get beat up by bullies and get bullied and stuff like that. Instead, 
he almost used that as like a defense mechanism that anyone ever came to him, he would just, you know, lash out and because he was scared, you know what I mean? It just, you know, violence just took him over. And at the age of 15, he was already like six foot and weighed over 175 pounds. The guy was a light heavyweight at his age. Kind of like, when, you know, in the same mold of a Mike Tyson, who you saw at the age of 13 and 14, who looked like a grown ass man, you know, and people, <clears throat> kids at that age who are built like that, and come from a really rough background, usually use that as an asset to do whatever the hell they want on the streets and run wild. And Merritt was no different. So that got him quickly into a reformatory at the age of 15. You know, that didn't take long. And, and it's actually interesting because one of the things that I, I also had not seen somewhere else was that uh, he fought for, in the, in the early 1960s, he actually had already fought as an amateur before he gotten in, into any trouble. Um, <clears throat> I think the common narrative is that he picked up boxing in prison, which is like kind of true. Like he furthered his career in in prison, but he did not pick up boxing in prison. Uh, he was already into sports and he fought for a club called the Pan Am Boxing Club in Kansas City. And I guess this club is like, this, this is fairly obscure because I couldn't find shit about it, dude. Like there really, there was like one other article where it was mentioned and the only mention of it was that, like, it was for some other amateur show years earlier, you know, so-and-so of the Pan Am Boxing Club. Okay. That's it. And so, but apparently this place existed. However, that's not, you know, that's not really that crazy. The, just think about even just if you live in a fairly large city, how many how many fight clubs there are around your city and how many pop up and they're gone yeah. next year, et cetera. It, it happens. So uh, in any case, he had already started boxing uh, by the time he was a fairly young teenager and he'd gotten, you know, he'd kind of channeled himself, I suppose, into boxing. But it sounds like he was not able to focus that. And yeah, even at the age of 15, he had already started getting into some pretty serious trouble, man. Um, you know, I, I couldn't find much about the rape charge, apparently, the that is mentioned. In I didn't see much on that either. I know Newfield mentions it in his book, and I'm not calling anybody a liar. I just couldn't find it. But um, there was definitely stuff about he was around drugs. He was getting hit with robbery charges and drug-related offense charges. And so basically, uh, he had gone in and out of custody or in and out of trouble enough that he finally landed himself, you know, in like basically permanent, permanently in custody in the system. Well, yeah, by um, 1962, he's in the Missouri State Penitentiary, which um, coincidentally was the home of Sonny Liston, probably their most famous inmate. And at this point, this is, um, you know, Merritt. And when he gets over there, this is when things start, you know, the wheels start turning for him. Because like you said, he was already taking up boxing at this point. And, you know, a street fighter and a guy that was just as big as his age, you know, knew how to use his hands well. So he was well to do. But when he, when he goes to the penitentiary over there, Liston soon after becomes heavyweight champion by knocking out Floyd Patterson. And and so and, and um, because of that, becomes um, somewhat of an inspiration to guys like Merritt and others in the system. You know what I mean? And not only that, knowing that Liston comes from that same place that, you can't have Merit, that they're currently in, it gives them hope that they can come out. They're working in the same gym that worked, Liston worked out. Hell, even when the heavy bags that Liston, you know, used to use and had his name scribbled on and stuff like that, Merritt was working on. So he's having all this inspiration. Now his mind is getting solely focused on having an outlet or, you know, something, you know, he's not going to be able to get out of work, get out of, um, get out of jail, become a lawyer and do these other type of jobs that, 
you know, society looks frown on very badly upon, you know, career criminals. Boxing, welcomes whoever the hell they want, you know what I mean? Open arms. So Merritt was finding an outlet. That doesn't mean to say that when he got out of jail, he was still having it, you know, he became straight and narrow. If anything, that's definitely not. He was still getting in trouble. He was still getting arrested. It was a guy that just had problems, you know what I mean? He just didn't really have that place, that focus, that someone was really going to direct him. That manager, someone else was going to be like, hey, listen, you don't have to do this. Here's money. Here's this and that. We're going to guide you and try to put you in a certain direction over here. But soon enough, he would. Yeah, and, and the... Like I think you mentioning Sonny Liston is pretty key there, dude, for sure, because <clears throat> Sonny Liston winning the heavyweight championship, obviously there's prestige and money that comes with winning the heavyweight championship or promoting, you know, the person or managing or whatever, handling the person who won the heavyweight championship, et cetera. And so, yeah, like the the idea that so, that somebody could be reformed from prison you know, that there's money in that, you know, all of a sudden that's, that's not impossible. And so in 1967, Joe Lewis and Sandy Sadler, uh, among a couple of others uh, in the National Maritime Union, they visited the Missouri State Penitentiary, uh, I guess, because they had heard uh, that Jeff Merritt and some others had made names for themselves fighting uh on these amateur shows that were sponsored by the Missouri state penitentiary. Um, and so there were actually a whole host of shows where the, the MSP literally hosted, you know, sponsored paid for these shows and they would have uh, other amateur teams come in just like any other amateur show, you know, when you pit one team against another or whatever, but they would have a handful of guys from the penitentiary fight facing, you know, et cetera, some other team. But Joe Lewis, uh, who, again, obviously was well removed from the heavyweight championship at this point, had come in with Sandy Sadler, who was also well removed from the featherweight championship. But Sandy Sadler had handled other fighters and had worked with a number, number of amateurs and stuff like that and later worked with uh, George Foreman. Obviously, they came in. They saw Jeff Merritt. I guess they had seen something in him. He was a, a massive dude, you know, at 6'4", 6'5", had a... Uh, fro, you know, sideburns, dude, dude was looking scary. You know, he was a uh, heavy puncher, kind of held his hands low, was a free swinger, you know, yes. a, a, just a guy who you don't want to stand in front of somebody like that. Like very Deontay Wilderish, you know, bombs immediate. Yes. Very good. Very good comparison. He was a guy. I mean, obviously just... they didn't look exactly the same, but it's just that you don't want to stand in front of somebody like that. Period. Anything merit was more, more of a free swinger than Wilder. Like Wilder at least tries to was much, is much more reserved <laughs> tries to set up his punches before he goes wild. Yeah. He if settled he down. Merit never did. Yeah. Merit never did. If you watch the bear, if you watch the, the few videos and the few footage out there of merit, you see the way he fights like, Free swinging hands down, like you said, just kind of swinging from the hip and trying to take you off your head with every punch. You know what I mean? Like, and not to say he was a wild slugger with no technique. There was technique there. He was a very, very talented fighter. But yeah, it was just, you know, every punch was with mean intent to take you and put you into, you know, the shadow realm. <laughs> yeah, it's it, obviously, you know, the at the very least it's eye catching, you know, you, you watch a fighter like that and it's like, you, you got to see what happens because either they're getting knocked out or they're knocking somebody out. That's usually what happens. And so in, in any case, uh, Joe Lewis in particular, I guess, saw something in Jeff Merritt and the plan <clears throat> initially. So this was in the summer of 1967. The plan was initially 
to get Jeff Merritt to the 1968 Olympics the following summer. And so they moved, they, the, the whole plan was, all right, we got to get Jeff Merritt paroled. Uh, he had served two years of, I think like a 10 year sentence or something like that, or a seven year sentence, something, it was a, a legitimate, you know, serious sentence. And he'd served about two years and they got him paroled. Uh, Joe Lewis goes into court, speaks on his behalf. They have a, a whole team of people there who are looking like a bunch of professional ass fucking you know, people sitting next to Joe Lewis, et cetera, to make it look like um, <clears throat> basically the the point is to make it look like Jeff Merritt has something to do somewhere to go if he gets released from prison. That's the whole point. You know, we don't want this guy getting in trouble again. We don't want to see him back here, et cetera. So Joe Lewis says, yes, we're going to the the National Maritime Union was a labor group. And so they they could ostensibly get get people jobs and stuff like that, get them good jobs, union jobs. And so that was the whole plan. Move Jeff Merritt to New York, get him a job, keep him busy, make sure that he's got money, you know, make sure he doesn't need to be getting into trouble, make sure he's training, et cetera, which is basically what he did. But uh kind of similar to Cloverly, no? What's that? Kind of similar similar to how Joe Frazier was backed by Cloverly, right? Dude, you read my mind. Oh, there you go. No, you you got it, dude. Uh, Ali with the Louisville business yeah. group or whatever it was. Uh, Oscar Bonavena also had a syndicate that was backing him. Mm-hmm. And like basically uh, these groups of people would get together and all pitch in money and they would invest. Yeah. And assuming that some fighter would eventually get to a championship or if not get to a championship, get paid very well. And then you get your investment back and then some. And so, like with Oscar Bonavena, Bill Gallo, the cartoonist, he fucking bought bought some uh, stock, you know, in Bonavena. Uh, Harold Harold Letterman bought stock in Bonavena. I mean, dude, a whole bunch of fucking people. It was wild. So, in any case, uh, point being, yeah, like this is kind of how it went. Was Jeff Merritt went up to New York, and the plan was to set him up for the Olympics the following year. But instead, I think that uh, I don't have an answer, but if I had to guess, my guess was that Lewis Lewis and whomever else saw that Merritt was a bit of a firecracker and they weren't really certain that they were going to get him through to the Olympics. Like, I don't know if that they thought he would last to the Olympics, you know. And so instead, he turned pro in 1968. And not too long after that, though, there were some changes. They were, man. Um, first off, early in his career, he was featured in Madison Square Garden, you know, where a lot of guys are always dreaming to want to be fighting stuff like that. Merritt early on, you know, got put on there quickly. And first off, when he was there, you know, he, he scored some knockouts and he was looking really good. But then, you know, he um, he ended up slipping up really quickly. But um, on the undercard of, um, of what was it, George, uh, George Chavallo fighting Manuel Ramos, uh, Joe Frazier's sparring partner by the name of Jerry Goss scored a big upset over Merritt. But back then, too, like when today, when, you know, people think, <laughs> oh, my God, you know, when a prospect gets like flattened, and everyone's like, oh, well, that's the end of the world or nothing like that. Back in the late 60s, 1968, 1969, it wasn't the end of the world. Prospects lost. That's how you learn, if anything, that gave Merritt the experience that he needed to shake off the cobwebs to keep on going with his career. But like you said, soon after that, though, man, um, the writing was on the wall with him. And Merritt, like you said, outside of the ring issues, things like that, that nature. And the syndicate realized that, you know, 
there was gonna be there's gonna have to be some changes. Plus, Merritt was getting a little bit annoyed with the two. It was kind of becoming like a both, like um, a two ways type of strife. This would become a reoccurring theme with Merritt. Whoever he was involved in, he would get very very aggravated with, feeling he wasn't getting enough fights, he wasn't getting paid enough, yada yada yada. You know, each one escalated, especially when he gets to Don King later on. We're about to get to that soon enough, but you know, this would become a theme. But at this point, it looks like Merritt's gonna be moving to Miami. Yeah, basically. <clears throat> excuse me yeah it, i think that uh like i said it's and like you also said the his inability to just kind of stay focused his propensity for getting into trouble mm -hmm. it just started taking over dude like and getting to new york you could see that very on in his uh very early on in his career that he fought at the national maritime union hall like a whole bunch of times and i would imagine that that had some sort of connection to the lewis and sadler and stuff like that and then in his first fight at madison square garden is that jerry or uh, the uh johnny gauss loss and it's kind of like i think that that might have been what influenced you know obviously a loss didn't mean nearly as much then but it probably did influence what they were doing with his career. Like, all right, dude, you know, you fought at the national maritime, blah, blah, blah place a number of times. And then the, your first time we get you to the garden, you lose like, ah, that's not looking so great for you, kid. You know, maybe we need to dial it back a little bit, but you know, they take him back to the union hall, but at the same time, I think the, the plan all along, you know, he had been talking to the press and stuff like that. Anytime he mentioned something was like, Oh, you know, I'd, I want to fight some big name. I want to fight Foreman. I want to fight this this person or that person, you know, so it, they had to keep him moving and he's a heavyweight. He's a big heavyweight. He's a hard hitting heavyweight. It's all about that momentum, you know? And so, yeah, they <clears throat> brought him back. He fought at the felt forum. He got a couple of pretty decent wins against uh, like Roy Williams, for instance, when he was, a good win. yeah, when he was undefeated, you know, he took his O that's not massive, but that's a pretty good win. And I think something that if you're developing a guy like Jeff Merritt's career, you're thinking, okay, all right, we got him back on track. We're, you know, we're, 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 we're moving along here, but dude, the trouble too much, far too much. And you can see that he's starting to slow down just a teeny bit activity wise. Uh, and then all of a sudden he, the venue shifts to Miami beach. And that's yeah. because down in Miami beach, were the Dundees. You got Angelo Dundee and Chris Dundee, who were both, you know, promoters and managers in addition to Angelo being trainer. And so they had basically, and, you know, it's potentially some icky connections down there, <laughs> you know, but I mean, they, they were very well connected in the boxing community period. They knew a lot of people. There were always fighters coming in and out of the fifth street gym. And on top of that, uh, always heavyweights too. name heavyweights who were sparring with Ali. And so there was a high quality of opposition going, going through Miami beach. Really uh, Merritt was probably lucky that that was the direction that he went in. I mean, <laughs> because uh, compared to other places he could have gone, I guess, you know, that's, that's a pretty good place to go. Almost definitely. You know, his last fight in MSG was against a guy named Henry Clark, who was, and that was a very, very solid win for him because Clark, despite his record um, of not looking impressive at that point of only being 17 and five, had been in with a who's who of uh, guys at that point, including monsters like Sonny Liston. And for Merritt to be able to get a decision of him, albeit Clark, you know, was a uh, late replacement and always said afterwards that he wasn't, you know, fully prepared for a fight like that was still a good win on his record. So, yeah, he had momentum moving on to Miami. But like you said, you know, I think the syndicate and everyone else would just want their hands clean with them because they realized the loss was going to be much worse than, you know, than um, than the much greater than the reward. So 
like you said, he moves on to Miami, Miami, excuse me, Miami, and actually gains a big following over there, you know, because he's a big knockout puncher. Like you said, he's big, he's burly, he's scary. Miami loves that type of scene anyways. And, you know, punches have always thrived over there. And um, the Dundies, they know how to promote their guys and to keep them active. So Merritt was doing his thing. And he was scoring good wins against, again, again, if you look at his record, it's guys that, you know, they don't have great win, they don't have great records, but they were good journeymen and, you know, serviceable guys for the era of the early 70s. Guys like Stanford Harris, guys like Charlie Polite, they didn't have great records, but they were in with a who's who of, you can imagine if you look at their records, and they usually went rounds with most of these guys, and Merritt was blowing them out. So he did have momentum, and things were looking good for him as well, but his outside-the-ring issues, like you said, Pat, were starting to take shape. And it wasn't so much him getting into crime and doing a bunch of other stuff, but, you know, eventually things started coming to light that people didn't even realize and that was the fact that, you know, he had an addiction to drugs, primarily heroin. Yeah, he had... I don't know where he picked it up, but honestly, the time that he was they doing... Said it was when he was young, I believe. Right? Well, and, and the time that he was doing and the place that he was doing time... I wouldn't be shocked if, if he picked it up in prison or if at least it got worse in prison. Um, you know, heroin in the 1960s and 70s had started getting big, so it's not really a shock that that might happen. But yeah, I, I don't know where where he got it, but that was always the rumors that he was really into heroin, but he also smoked weed and that he was, well, he was just basically into drugs for the most part. Um, you know, he had a lot of shit. If he was going to get him high, he would do it. Like he did, he smoked weed. He would drink coughs. He would even drink cough syrup. A lot of that to try to get that's him right. High. That's true. Yeah. Him. I read that too. So, I mean, that's, that's not, that's the sign of somebody with a pretty serious addiction. If you're drinking cough syrup. Yeah. Yeah. I would say he had a few vices or two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not with my dime store psychology here, but he obviously was, was trying to, uh, mask a lot of the shit, the, a lot of the pain that had happened to him in his life. Oh. So, but that's what the problem is, is that a lot of these guys, you know, we've, we've heard of a lot of fighters who have always been able to hide their addictions or to a degree, especially in the heavyweight division. You know, you have, for example, <clears throat> oh, excuse me, yeah, for example, Michael Dokes, who had an insane cocaine addiction that eventually unraveled his career. But, you know, before then, he was still able to ascend to become WBA heavyweight champion. Um, Pinklin Thomas is another example, you know. Pinklin Thomas was an alcoholic by the time he was like 10, 12 years old and then, you know, picked up heroin only a year or two after that. Um, By all accounts, he was using it throughout his career. He'd clean up a little bit here and there, but he was using it, you know, even all throughout his reign. Um, And then he really started falling apart, hitting the skids in the late 80s, early 90s when it became apparent he had issues. But, you know, that's the thing with these guys is that, like, they're able to hide um, their addictions or their vices. Merit, not so much. But that's why it looks, you know, at this point he had to take a break. And that's when, you know, he kind of fell out of Miami. And um, when something like that happens, you know, it's kind of like with his career, it's in limbo. You know, he's still, he's been aligned with a lot of people. There's been a lot of promise there where people are just like, wow, man, you know, there could be something going on with his career. And like, he has, at this point too, when he's in Miami, obviously he's been sparring with Ali. Um, He was working with others. And um doing good sparring with Ali too there was always rumors that you know Merritt was like you know um was able to hurt Ali Ali said otherwise but there was you know Merritt was doing good out there but like you said his vices outside the ring started fucking him up and he had to take a little bit of time off so by the time he has his last fight in Miami which is in 1972 he takes off more than a year and at this point he's losing you know he switches over management and at this 
now um, a new player comes into the picture. And this new person is a young, bombastic guy who's freshly out of jail, um, a former numbers player in Cleveland, um, hustler, you know, probably a, per- a guy that ends up being perfect for the sport. And he's trying to make inroads. He just promoted a um, a show in Cleveland for, um, excuse me, for a uh, for the hospital, I guess that was the charity event featuring Muhammad Ali. And he realized he can make a lot of money in this. And, you know, so now he's going to get his roads in. This guy was named Don King. And Don King had his eyes on three guys. He had his eyes on Ernie Shavers. He had his eyes on Jeff Merritt. And there was a third individual. His name escapes me off the top of my head. But um, it was in the Newfield book. I can't remember. Off, I can't remember right now. But yeah, there was. I can tell you right now. Here, give me just one sec, and I'll tell you who it was. But yeah. Um, there was actually, I'll fill in real briefly. There were just like small, small blanks. Uh, some dude named Bill Perry, I guess, had purchased Merritt's contract at some point. Um, but then <clears throat> a separate syndicate had bought. So there was kind of a first syndicate or what our first group of people, but then a second syndicate, which was Joe Lewis, Bob Arum, and also. It included comedian Henny Youngman, who for some people might be like, who's that? It's the king, the king of the one-liners from Goodfellas. You know, I try to I take my wife everywhere, but she finds her way home. That guy, you know, the he's a he was he was big in like the in the fifties and sixties and shit, and probably big among like Bob mobsters or some shit ostensibly sure. or imaginarily. But anyway, he was he was part of this the syndicate who had bought the contract from this dude named Bill Perry, but then. Uh, he had gone, you know, to, in 1972, he had, I guess, kept sparring in Miami, uh, even though he, from, from what I understand, it wasn't explicit, but it sounded like the Dundees were like good fighter, but pass. Like, we're not, we're not going to get involved with this guy. You and know, that's like, saying something, isn't it? Not to cut you off, but think about that, because if you think about <laughs> Miami, uh, the, the Dundies, and we've taught me, you, um, Gray, Corey, all of us, we've talked about the seed, the seedy, seedy ass scene that was going on in Miami and the fighters and the aliases and all the different things going on back then. For them to pass up on a guy and be like, you know what, we're not going to touch that, says something. <laughs> I, I think that they could tell he was just, he was trouble, that he had problems and that he was inconsistent. Like when you could get him to the gym and work, like he was great. But when, but he might not show up one day, you know, he just might just Especially not when, show when they up. were dealing heavily with a guy like Jeff Sims a decade later. It, well, and they were already, their attention was already focused toward Ali. I'm sure, you know, to some degree. And Chris, I think was handling a number of other fighters, but you know, Angie especially was on, was on Ali, but, but he still was sparring there. It's not like he couldn't, you know, he was still there and hanging out. And the sparring session that you're talking about with Ali was in 1972 and that was the one that kind of, I guess, lives on in mythology that Ali's like, no, 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 here's what happened. I figured him yeah. out. And Jeff Merritt was like, nah, beat his fucking ass. Shut up. You know, so who knows? You know, Ali had gotten beaten up and sparring a number of different times and blah, blah, blah. But this, who gives a shit? The whole point is that apparently Bundini Brown, according to the folklore, was the one who introduced Jeff Merritt to Don King. And and that Don King, like you said, had been handling this kind of charity event for Ali 
And even in those charity events, just like decades earlier, there was a lot of money changing hands, dude. And there was a lot of, you know, probably funky accounting. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a lot of fucking O's being being fixed in for napkins and shit like that. So I can just see Don King's wheel, the wheel spinning in his yeah, head. Yeah, dude, his just looking at this wheelbarrow of money going by yeah. and going. And like the things and just being involved in being around a guy of Ali's stature and like, the, you know, no <laughs> the notoriety of becoming famous because of this. Like you just know every like, sure. He's like, wait a minute. You you just know that he was thinking in four decades, I'm never going to take this jean jacket off. In four decades, I'll have three fucking jars of candy sitting on my desk. Dude, that jean jacket. Even back in 07, the first time I saw him in person, that jean jacket was already faded as hell. And just like the rhinestones <laughs> were falling off of it. And it was just frayed on the sides. And I'm like, bro, you got money, Don. At least just update it. You can do something with it. Put some stones back in it. Something. <laughs> Dude, you know that shit just smells like broken contracts and fighter misery. Yeah. Probably cognac too. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it makes sense, dude. You know, you see Don King, I'm sure that just like any, like anybody, like Aram, like just about any big promoter has had that moment where they're like, dude, I could make some fucking money doing this. And sure enough, you know, Don King got into it in pretty short order, dude. It, and the thing about Don King is that, like, Don King was actually perfect for Merritt. Merritt was a street guy. Everyone that was aligned with him beforehand that handled his career were business people, more or less. And even guys like Joe Lewis were not a person that could really relate to Merritt because they couldn't, they weren't from the same background as his. You know what I mean? Don King was. Don King was a street guy. He just, you know, he did time for a murder when he stomped a guy to death. He was a numbers runner. He was involved in gangsters and hustling. And, just, and it was you know, Ray just, Anderson. Ray Anderson. Yeah. There you go. So that was the third guy. Yep. So. Don King was just a hustler his whole life. He was a street guy his whole life. He knew how to relate to people like Merritt. He knew how to talk to them. You know what I mean? He knew how to motivate them to get them into the type of mindset that needed them them to succeed. So, yeah, Don was probably perfect for Merritt at that point. Um, Obviously, he was going to screw him over. As we found out, that would be a reoccurring theme throughout his life and career. But at that point in time, this looked like it was going to be the perfect fit. And early on, when Merritt made his comeback, it certainly looked that way, too. Yeah, dude, uh, you know, it, it's crazy, too, because in so you the guy that you brought up earlier, Henry Clark, uh, very experienced dude. But in 1974, so they rematched in 1974 and Merritt lost to Henry Clark. And at that point in 1974, two of King's key fighters in Jeff Merritt and Ernie, Ernie Shavers had lost in the span of just a few months. And Ernie Shavers was to Jerry Quarry, which we had talked about in the the Quarry family episode. So, I mean, you know, this was a massive blow, but the whole point is that, like, you go through Jeff, uh, Jeff Merritt's career at this point, right? Like, it's he does not have a long career. You, you go from where he's in Miami Beach, and so Don King pretty quickly pretty quickly brings him back up north on the east coast Mm -hmm. and he gets a pretty key win over ernie terrell granted it's 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 1973 
but he a pretty key win over Ernie Terrell at, at the Garden and that's first round TKO which pretty much nobody was expecting like they people might have said oh well Jeff Merritt might get him but they weren't expecting to, him to run through him like that and you that know? was on the undercard of um well no not the undercard that was the main fight at at MSG but that was also they showed the close circuit of um Ali what was Ali Norton I think so yeah 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 so that was a big win. Like you said, man, Terrell had definitely seen better days at that point, and he himself was on a comeback. You know, Terrell was a decade removed probably from his days of being a top contender and obviously years removed from briefly being WBA heavyweight champion. But at this point in time, um, when he came back, uh, it was one of those fights that was like a crossroads. Terrell had lost to... um. Chuck Webner before that. And what was, I've never watched it, but by all accounts was just a straight up out and out robbery. And so at this point, you know, it was like expected. Trell was one of those guys that, you know, he goes rounds. Like you don't really knock him out. The only time he was stopped before that was, I believe, against Cleveland Williams. So when the fight starts and everything, Terrell, you know, tries to do the whole clutching grab. Like he was one of those guys that was very awkward, like probably sit in well with the any type of error, especially the big guys later on with the same clinching style that you would see. John Ruiz and the Klitschko's and others, others like that. But Merritt just had that crackling left hook. You know what I mean? That was one. That was his best punch. Type of punch that could shatter jaws, break speed bags, heavy bags, and just you know cause havoc among everybody. It caught Terrell. Terrell went to another world that he had no idea what the fuck just happened to him. Merritt pounced on him. Mer- Terrell didn't go down, but you know he was kind of hovered in a corner, just looking like um, Kingfish Levinsky against Joe Lewis. You know that famous photo, and he's just like coward yeah same thing so just overwhelmed yeah yeah completely overwhelmed like i was saying earlier you know Merritt's one of those kinds of guys where you can't let him get going like you can't let it start you know you gotta either nip it in the bud or just stay away like get the fuck away and let him tire out or something because that's that's all you got you can't meet him head on you know it's gonna be bad idea and if, and, you, and if you do, it's like, dude, it's like you said, bad news bears. The guy just would, he chucked. All right. He wasn't there to go over there and try to like, try to, you know, jab you, whatever. No, he walked in there and he was swinging some wood, like, you know, and they're just, if he had you hurt and he was already a nasty guy to begin with, and he probably didn't, you know, was dismissing you wouldn't, yeah. it was like a person smelling blood. You know what I mean? Like if a pit bull just finding a, a piece of meat that he was going to tear up and he just, yeah, dude, it, it's it, he was the kind of guy that was just so mean in the ring, and you couldn't let him get going. Because he was mean Terrell outside did. the ring too. He was mean outside of the ring too. You know, here's a story, as you mentioned, Pat. Um, that a little an interesting side bit. You mentioned that um, how we're about to mention the Henry Clark fight in a second, but around that time, also when Corey, um, when Ernie Shavers, his stablemate, was getting ready to fight Jerry Quarry. Um, that was the biggest fight of Don King's career up until that point. You know what I mean? Like he had Shavers was a huge punch. I'm not sure. Did Shavers already knock out Jimmy Ellis before he fought Corey? I believe so, right? I want to say yes. Not yeah. positive, but I want I think I want to say it's 72. So I okay. I think. So um, you know, Shavers had momentum and everything like that, but when there was a sparring session, that's the thing. There's that. That's the main key opponent uh component right here. There was this there was a key sparring session. So Merritt and Shavers being stable mates, they used to spar often. And Merritt always resented Shavers for a few reasons. One, he always felt that Don King was giving Shavers special treatment and giving him more attention than, than Merritt did. 
like we said, a reoccurring theme in his life. He always felt that his managers and promoters weren't really paying attention to him. Um, two, he always felt that Shavers used to take it rough on him in sparring. Shavers was a notorious guy in sparring. Everyone would always say whoever sparred with him that Shavers was not a guy that really held back and more or less would really put a whooping on whoever tried to, you know, get in with him. A guy that hits sides hard as Shavers, I get it. For example, in the rematch with Larry Holmes, the poor sparring partners had to have pieces of tape placed against their spar- against their uh, their headgear. And then Sharpie has said Holmes across it because that gave Shavers extra motivation to punch their faces in. <laughs> Jesus, dude. Can you imagine the poor motherfucker soiling himself as somebody's like writing Holmes on there? You're like, yo, yo, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> like, bro, really? That may as well just put an X on my head, the bandana, and give me a cigarette. Like, he's mouth. already going to beat my ass. Like, now yeah. you're just going to fucking make sure I can't have children. What the fuck? <laughs> You're like, hey, hold up, Bobby, come here really quick. Uh, excuse me, what's, what's happening here, guys? But uh, I can't see what's going on. Don't worry about it. <laughs> brutal, dude. Absolutely brutal. You know what? You go in the mirror and you look and you see Holmes blazing across your skull and you're just way off. You fuck sure, that. guys? I didn't sign up for this. How much am I going to get paid? Yeah, <laughs> fuck that, dude. Making, making the minimum making like 200 bucks a week or something like that dude you're fuck that i mean you weren't making at least sparring partner money i mean i'm sure you weren't getting paid like peanuts but like how many of those guys spent like a couple of days there just getting their brains rattled and they were just like you know what it's really not worth it i want to see my kids in 15 years <laughs> like you know, and they're probably part of the don king heavyweight factory too so it's oh, like absolutely. who knows what they were getting paid who knows well, what they're getting paid that's what Merritt was having to go through. That was Shavers in the late 70s beating the shit out of these guys, all right? This is him in the early 70s when he still had the hair and the full man chew going yep. on. Really scary. So Merritt said that Shavers would bully him, you know, beat him up and everything like that, which by all accounts sounds about right. So Merritt had a lot of, you know, venom built up in him. A lot, you know, he was de- definitely pissed off. And as a guy who was already bitter and pissed off and angry as Merritt was at life, didn't really take a lot for him to get it, you know, to, to seek vengeance. And you know what, though, dude? I have to say that, like, again, my fucking thrift store psychology class here, dude. Uh, I, I all right, man. I got a couple. Su- I got a couple semesters of community college under my belt. All right, yeah. Break it down. But for real, like, that's some crackhead type shit behavior, though, dude. Like when people Absolutely. are helping you, and and I'm not saying that Don King didn't fuck him, but like you said, it's like a it was a recurring theme throughout his career where he would constantly like bite the hand that fed him. And that's like crackhead type of behavior, dude, where like, you know, somebody's helping you and you're just like, you're not helping me enough type of shit. And it's like, bro, you're destroying my life and yours. And despite that, I'm helping you. What the fuck? But that that the, that's the kind of shit that he did throughout his career. And that kind of, I think, boosts the claim that he was probably under the influence or addicted to something for much of much of that time. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Well, no question. Always trying to help it. Don, Don said, I'm not siding completely with Don here, but Don exactly, yeah. did say over and over that there was times he was, he actively did try to help him. He did get him back on track. He put him in with proper management, got him like in shape, got him a place to live, like, you know, try to get his life in order. And those were, these weren't like non high profile fights he was putting him in. These were high profile fights. Like Ernie Terrell was a high profile, profile fight at MSG. Um, his very next fight, which is on YouTube. I mean, he might have been calling in favors for the fights, you know, King yeah. is, you know what I'm saying? And because especially at this point, too, King is still young, like he's still breaking in in his career. So if anything, he's wanting success for his guys so he can make an impact, not trying to actively screw guys early on. I mean, he always has his eyes on the prize, 
And you can clearly say, okay, the first time he won loses, he's going to like wash him away and concentrate on something else. But if his guys are winning and he's still early in his career, he's going to keep on trying to like motivate that because he's young and hungry himself. He wants to, he wants to, you know, he wants dominance. So and it almost makes me wonder though. So like, so we move forward and we get to, well, actually you, you posted some, some footage of it. So it's worth mentioning because it's Ron Stander and Joe Frazier beat the absolute fucking piss out of Ron Stander. So, I mean, that's, mostly his claim to fame i'm not trying to be rude but yeah if you watch this and you're not really familiar with ron stander you probably would remember him during the uh terence crawford yuriorkas gamboa card yeah where he was showing the audience and god bless ron man yeah he, he nah, yeah. <laughs> <You> <laughs> know, i mean I, i'm doing it out of love i'm doing it out That's, of love. no we all are man you know what i mean he was sitting there and he finally gave the adulation of all the fans around him, all these drunk things. Probably. And Ron probably had a few beers himself. You know what I mean? He's feeling it. Bless <laughs> he had him, the overalls man. on, you right? He's it, like the way, like the way he's looking. He's like, yeah. He's like, oh shit, oh shit, yeah. And then Fucking he's feeling it, you know? Yeah, he really feeling it. So, I mean, good for him. He was a guy that fought a who's who of more or less everybody back and in the day. Just got I mean, battered. Battered by them all. The only, you know, somehow he scored a knockout over Ernie Shavers, but I assume, I'm not, again, I don't even think footage of that fight exists, but I assume that's kind of kind of, that was more like a Homer Simpson fighting a boxcar guy on that episode. <laughs> like Shavers just hit him till he got exhausted. Yeah, just, yeah, just outlasted him. Yeah. Somehow stayed up. Yeah. So, I mean, he. Shannon just... Stander could pick a beating. Even Sh- even Joe Frazier, who cut him up and it looked like a roadside map when he was done, couldn't knock him down. So what we're getting is that Merritt, not only was he beat the hell out of Standard, he dropped him. He dropped him twice. Apparently, though, they, they said that was the first time Standard was ever dropped. And dude, it, it's like, it, it's it's hard to watch, man, because like, it's just a straight up massacre. You know what I mean? It's, Merritt, like, it's like you, that, that you brought the Simpsons. It's like the stop, stop. He's already dead. Like, it's like a beating where you're just like, okay, oh, hey, 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 stop it. What the fuck and you can tell Mel- Merritt is relishing it like he is just so into just pummeling this dude he walks in douche oh douche. uppercuts the left they're like um it, kind it's of like it's like when it. it's when they have like contempt they're like oh you're gonna fucking stay up fine yeah. and then i'm gonna hit you again like oh my god and standard and you see a couple of standards shaking his head no 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 and so Merritt's like okay <laughs> <laughs> boom and finally oh standard. no okay <laughs> He's getting knocked Eat around. some more then. Yeah, and then finally he drops like a log, gets up, gets dropped again, and he's laying there. And then you see Merrick coldly walk away with his hands up. And you're like, fuck, man. He's a scary individual. Like, this is a guy that's going to be a reckoned with in division. Everyone is, like, excited because, you know, he's tall. This is he's, a good run. Yeah. He's lanky. He has monstrous power. He's has, you know, the coldness of Sonny Liston. And who's going to stop him? You know what I mean? The only person at that point um, that was exhibiting anything like that was George Foreman, you know? So that's where things were hopefully were heading, especially what King was hoping to bring them. But what we're getting at, I don't even think we brought up the sparring session again. We got to go back to that again. Like, so to bring that up, what really happened and to bring up this coldness of merit, when Shavers was getting ready to fight um, Jerry Corey for the first time, Merritt gets brought in to spar him again. At this point, Merritt now is a, is a heavyweight um, himself who's, you know, in the same stable and everything like that, and he's pissed and, off. And it would have been right around this time, too, after the standard fight. So yes, it's like exactly. we're – Yeah. We're right around intertwined at this point, and Merritt got a chip on his shoulder, and he's like, you know what? It's time for a little bit of payback. 
So they get in there and they're rumbling. They're rumbling hard and they're going back and forth. Shavers had a bad tendency of keeping his mouth open a lot when he was throwing punches or just in general. He just breathed with his mouth open. And they were always warning him about that, telling him, don't do that shit. It's going to get, you know, it's going to mess you up one day. And sure enough, Merritt threw one of his left hooks, probably on purpose, because like you said, you know, you shouldn't have, it's kind of like a, you know, a bitch move, not a bitch move, like, um, just one of those salty moves where you just kind of like really kind of take, you cut, you know, he probably could have done something a little bit better than ruining your boy's chances for a big payday. But Merritt throws a left hook, a sucker shot, you know, and cracks Shaver's jaw in like a few different places, completely just breaks it, you know, and ruins, um, Shavers at that point his potential chance at Corey, which would have been the biggest fight of his career. So Don King is livid. He's absolutely furious. He immediately fires Archie Moore, who was working with Shavers at that point. He's like, why would you do something like that? Why would you let them spar? You know Merritt's a psychopath. Whatever. Um, Gil Clancy, who was handling Jerry Corey, he's flabbergasted by the whole thing himself, too, because he kind of knew, you know, everybody's familiar with Merritt and knowing how much of a hothead he is. And knowing that it was probably stupid that he put them in as a sparring session so close to a fight. And he tells Merritt the same thing. Listen, uh, Clancy said something to the effect of, you don't spar. He was like, you don't spar at Jeff Merritt. You only fight him for money. Why would you do that? <laughs> and so, and uh, even years later, so Don King fired Archie Moore mm-hmm. and as, uh, as Ernie Shaver's trainer and I mean, there was speculation at the time, even though Shavers, like, he never really seemed to have super great punch resistance, especially if you could hang on a few rounds. You know, there there was a good chance you could just outlast him. You know, it might not even take big punches to take him down because he was just, it would, like, get exhausted. It wasn't even that his chin was awful necessarily. But even so, you know, there was some speculation that that injury obviously made his jaw worse Mm -hmm. and made his punch resistance worse. And so then when Don King also, as a response, fired Archie Moore because Archie Moore had some questions about what was going on, uh, Don King basically went to the press and was like, no, Archie wasn't following, you know, doing what I was telling him to do. And Archie was just doing what he wanted to do. So I fired him. He can't stick around camp and blah, blah, blah. And years later, Ernie Shavers was like, that fucked me up too, because I loved Archie. And Archie was like, you know, my trainer and Don King just got rid of him. And like, you know, I didn't want that. Yeah, it became a reoccurring thing for Don's career too. You know what I mean? Yep. Hey, by yeah, the just... way, my son's your manager now. By the way, I want you to get rid of this guy and um, Aaron Snowell's your trainer. Yeah. Or Richie that... your trainer. <laughs> he did that to a whole bunch of fighters, just installing these, you know, people who were loyal to him or would keep tabs yeah. on a fighter or whatever. Did it a whole number of times. And oh. that's what he did to Ernie Shavers too. And so, I mean, you know, Ernie Shavers in the same camp basically as Jeff Merritt because they're stable mates. And uh, you could see just already the kind of chaos and inconsistency going on at the behest of Don King at this point. And so then going into this Henry Clark rematch, you know, uh, I think that it was clear that Jeff Merritt was hot. You know, he was definitely on a good streak. Uh, a number of opponents weren't super great, but between Ernie Terrell and Ron Stander, they were two either ranked or just outside of ranked contenders. So, yeah, I mean, you could see him, you could see why getting some get back uh, or getting, you know, back in the ring with a Henry Clark, why that would make sense. You know, Henry Clark, super experienced, you know, you could gauge where you are in your career against a guy like that. But apparently, you know, <laughs> you could also just step on a fucking landmine too. 
And that opened up a thing that a lot of people weren't aware of, um, was that Jeff Mara had a chin of a silly putty. You know, you know, I, like a lot of monster punches, sometimes if you can get through and get to them, you can hurt them. And so Henry Clark, like we said, their first fight, he loses a competitive decision to merit, but he hung tough and threw it. And he always was bitter about that fight. And he always mentioned that too, because like we said, he came in as a last minute replacement and he wasn't even really in shape and he wasn't prepared for the style or anything like that. And so, you know, he lost a, a decision. So he always maintained that if he was in tip top shape for that fight and was actually prepared, he was going to put a whooping mm-hmm. on Clark. He was going to put a whooping on Jeff Merritt and he was clamoring for that fight. So as the rematch happens in 1974, Clark has been around for a long time at this point. He's not a top contender. He's more of a fringe contender. If you're going to get, you know, if you're going to move on to the upper echelon of the division, you're going to have to get through him. And it won't be easy because Clark was a guy that you just didn't knock out quickly. Only guys like Ernie Shavers and, and um, um, excuse me, uh, whatchamacallit, um, Sonny Liston shows you how far back Clark went and guys of that nature were able to stop him. But so Clark came in with a chip on his shoulder. So when they have this rematch now, and it's on YouTube too, it's not great footage, but because it's kind of like a faraway angle and everything, but you can see the body language right away. Clark is like hype. You just see him, he's like boiling in the corner. And a guy who patterned himself off of a style like Muhammad Ali, and of that nature as a boxer who moved and wasn't really a big puncher. Um, no, nah, he came in like he was Mike Tyson that night. Like he definitely was feeling a certain type of way. And Merritt came in almost more relaxed. You know what I mean? The same kind of like the lanky, um, free, uh, free swinging style that he always kept. But even more so, it just seemed like he's just a little off. You know what I mean? Something's just, just not quite there with him. And as they start up, you know, Clark right away jumps out the gate and then boom, hits him with a screaming shot that Merritt just flats out of it and has no idea what the hell just happened to him. And more or less, the fight's over after that. Clark just sweeps him up. You know, and and also kind of weaving in and out of this this entire tale, like, you know, the last several years that we've talked about of Merritt's mm-hmm. career, he, is, he was also going in and out of trouble. Most of it, like, kind of medium, you know, like, not major. It would it would be like uh, he'd get picked up for suspicion of X, Y, or Z, and then get let off, or you know get picked up for something else, but then like you know get charged with something else unrelated or whatever. And so he had he had been still getting into trouble, but his connections, uh, also having Don King around, you know Don King also had connections, etc. So he was able to kind of skirt his way around the major trouble for the most part. But this loss was big, dude. This loss definitely seemed to break something in him. Um, but also, it, I, I don't want to speculate anything about, like, you know, brain injuries. I don't know anything about that. But it certainly seemed like this was a turning point in his life. Perhaps it was less a brain injury and more the realization that he probably wasn't going to be a champion. And that well, I mean, it's a up. shocking thing. Yeah, it's, it's definitely you know a I mean? reality. For a guy that you originally beat and you go in there and you're riding high at the highest point of your career now and fight you probably thinking you know, you're already overconfident. You've had and you've had Joe Lewis, Sandy Sadler, you know, this dude who was just with, you know, fucking around with Don King, the team that was you know, or uh, Muhammad Ali, you know, yeah. the, the Muhammad Ali's entire team was like, you know, you've been in his gym. Everybody so, is clamoring about it. Everybody's so singing it's, it's crazy. You're that shit was probably that. a real hard crash, you know? A huge one because it only it lasted less than a minute you know no henry clark is not a guy who knocked out people in 30 seconds this was not mike tyson this was not ernie shavers this was not like a massive this was not wilder all right 
He was a boxer primarily. He didn't even score a lot of knockouts in his career. Sure, he could sting you a little bit, but he was just a pesky boxer with a good chin. He was not a knockout puncher. So for Jeff Merritt to get flattened in 47 seconds that badly, that's a tremendous blow to your career. That would really affect anybody. And people would just kind of be like, whoa, you know, like, all right, then we got to take a step back and pump the brakes a little bit. And unfortunately, this was the first instance, and this is what created all the, the bitterness with Jeff, um, with Jeff Merritt, is this is the first instance where you saw Don King was like, oh, look at that. You know, I got damaged goods now. Sweep that to the side, and we see what I can pick up over here. Here, come here. Like, you know, and Merritt, who already was feeling abandonment issues throughout his career, a guy that's already, you know, feeling bitter about management and people um, not really taking care of him and thinking that, you know, conspiracies and X, Y, and Z, and a person that has all the out-of-the-ring issues that he does, that's just going to fuel the fire. If anything, it's going to fuel it even more so because he felt so connected with Don. And, you know, a person like Don King, who just knows how to, like, tap into your inner, in, into your inner self by saying everything that you want to hear and saying everything that you need to hear and making you believe that he really gives a shit and that he wants to be a father figure to you, that's going to even hurt you even more so. So I can't even imagine what was going through Merritt's head at that point. Um, with his career in a tailspin. So, um, with you know, with that happening right there, that's one of the things when he was talking about when he was writing with Larry Holmes and other stuff. And there was like a part in his book, in Larry Holmes's book, where um, him and Merritt are riding together. I think they might have been sparring or training or whatever it was, but they were riding together. And Merritt told Holmes, hey man, take me to a neighborhood to go buy some weed. And Holmes is like, okay, he wasn't going to tell him no. So, you know, they go out and um, Holmes was like, you know, I grew up rough. He's like, I know homeboys. I could find what he needed. So it wasn't difficult. And so they went and they found him. Merritt bought some stuff. And I think he went to go buy some cough syrup too, right? So Merritt's drinking that. He's smoking and everything. And they're in the car together. And Holmes is just kind of like, yeah. And Holmes just kind of like, yeah, okay, sure. Like, like, what's, you know, like, what the fuck? So let's listen to some music, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's when, um, Merritt was actively planning to kill Don King. Like, I don't, I tried to find the article. It used to, they, there was a really thorough article about it on boxing.com. And I wish that website was still around because there was a lot of really good information from a lot of historians, right? Ted Saris, who recently passed away, was one of the guys who wrote for boxing.com. Yeah. But there was a lot of good, like, um, really, really good historical articles on guys that usually don't get a lot of ink. Yeah. So, uh, that's true. Yeah um Merritt was one of them and they they talked a lot about that though like the whole home situation it was kind of funny to read about because I can't even imagine being in that situation where a guy kind of strong arms you'd be like yo man drive me around and go buy weed and you're like well sure <laughs> and while you're in there you're hearing about how he wants to actively murder your promoter and you're just like where <laughs> but um and he almost did it. Like Merritt, like I had a full-on plan where he was gonna go to King's house and like do X, Y, and Z and just take him out. But you know, clearly that didn't happen. Um, but again, that fight, the um the Henry Clark fight, really sent Merritt's career into a tailspin again. Like, you know, the momentum he had when he first came back and when King signed him and he stopped Ernie Terrell, he stops Ron Stander, then he gets knocked out by Henry Clark. King drops him, he's like, whatever. But when he comes back again, hold up, you gotta see, um, I believe. This was actually on a King card on um, this next one. I might be wrong. Let me find out. Oh, it actually was. See, after all of the stuff he was saying about King and all the other things, and, you know, he falls off, 
he comes back again in 1976 on the undercard of George Foreman, Scott Ledoux. Yeah, he had apparently stayed on speaking terms with King, despite the fact that so in so he loses to just make sure I get the dates correct here. So Literally. when he when he lost to uh, Henry Clark, it was March of 1974, about six months later or so, he was pulled over in a car and he was suspected of armed robbery. And he was, I believe, acquitted of that or let off on that, but then picked up for something else like in short order. And basically, um, he was identified in some other crime or something like that. And long story short, he had served a little bit of time again. But then when he had found his way out, he went back to Don King. And Don King was like, sure. And, and was like, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll put you on. I'll put you on the undercard of some, you know, some whatever. Yeah. Not a good idea. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it seemed like Avalanche Stan Ward was... Uh, would have been a fairly safe, you know, person to put him in with, generally speaking, but no. You would have thought so. Again, you know, Stan Ward, at this point, he's only 5-0. and um, Stan Ward would become one of those guys that, um, how would you explain it? He probably would be a better contender in any other era, but he was stuck not so much in the golden era of the 70s because I think he started peaking and came of age in the late 70s when, you know, a lot of those guys were slowing down. But that being said, those guys were still active. And Ward, who fought out of, you know, fought out of the California area, the L.A. area, Sacramento, um, you know, good all around, but you know, limited experience when he was already thrown to the wolves was just, you know, a level below a lot of those guys. Like, he fought Mike Weaver, yeah. he fought Ron Lyle, fought a lot of who's who. Yeah, he obviously had nobody, like, looking out for his career like that. Exactly. Because he, he was just put in with whomever, you know? He really was. He was thrown in with a lot of guys from beginning to end. And, but to his credit, too, I mean, like, he still had a decent career. Like, it wasn't bad. And, you know, for a guy, he still remembered today. Like, you know, hardcores will talk about, oh, yeah, yeah, Stan Ward was a good fighter. Anyways... Um, when he was at five and zero, oh, this was any none of that was supposed to happen. This was supposed to be just the easy bump on the road for Jeff Merritt to make his comeback, and then eventually, maybe if he looked impressive enough, Foreman's on the comeback as well, match him up with Foreman, you know, so and so, whatever. Doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, he had. Uh, so Merritt had himself had talked about potentially getting in there with Fraser Foreman. You know, you, you it's that era. You know, you just start yeah. mentioning these big names. Really, you just say the name Ali and pe reporters just come running, you know, people, what? <laughs> so, I mean, he just started calling out names and shit like that. And I, I, it still made sense at that point. Like, he still had only lost early in his career into Hen and to Henry Clark. So it's kind of like, you know, it's still, you know, you could conceivably, you can get back into contention. All right, you spend some time in prison. It'd be okay. You know, you had some time off. It'll come back. But it's just we we've already seen his limitations, not only as a person, you know, he's had a lot of outside the ring trouble, but as a fighter, he's limited and he's limited by a, a, a jaw that just is not holding up. And so, yeah, that style and, and on top of that, the, the inactivity could not have helped, uh, you know, coming off of a bad loss and then the style that we're seeing where he's driving head headlong into making these guys who are not big punchers, big punchers. Yeah, dude, it was just, it was bad. It was bad. And, you know, the stuff he was probably doing outside the ring too, you know, he was definitely dealing with a lot of demons and his drug issues. 
So he comes back in. Ward at this point is young and he's very hungry and motivated. And I believe this was probably the first time he was featured, you know, on a network television on a major undercard like this. So, yeah, he knows what he has in front of him. He knows the opportunity he had. So he took what he what was in front of him and blasted him out. And um, like I said, went on to have a respectable career after that. Merritt's career, on the other hand, was ruined, shattered. You know, the Ward fight was the nail in the coffin. It wasn't ended. It wasn't over yet. He still had a couple more fights in him, but more or less. In terms of him ever doing anything or potential of doing anything, done. Yeah, I mean, like the the dude that he gets in with later on that year, Billy Daniels, is another guy who fought literally everybody around that time. Not Buster's dad. What's that? Not Buster's dad. But, yeah, Columbus, Billy Daniels. Wait, that was Buster's dad? No. No, no that's what I said, yeah. No. Oh, Billy Daniels. Billy Wait, whoa, Daniels. Whoa, 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 excuse me, excuse me. I was no, thinking. no, no. No, he uh, fought. Oh, he was... Daniels, wait, wait, Billy Daniels that fought Ali and everybody else. Yeah, he fought like everybody. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Billy Daniels was that guy, the like, heavyweight. From the everybody, everybody, everybody. He was like a long, long. Yeah, he was. Yeah, forever. he was like at like five hundred, not even five hundred, but like, oh no, okay, a little over five hundred. But he fought like everybody, and Who's just who? about yeah. yeah, just about everybody that he stepped in with, with that was any good. He lost to like you know he went undefeated early on in his career against mostly nobodies and then pretty much like just started getting whooped on but like, but like no, Ernie Tur- uh, not Ernie Tur- like Zora Foley, Doug Jones, a young Ali, everybody. everybody. Yeah. And, but I mean, like, I guess, all right, fine. You know, you get in with Billy Daniels and like, all right, here's your chance dude. just get a win, you know, get your career back on the right track. It's still 1976, you know, it's still, a, I guess a comeback or whatever. And he comes back a couple months later, but also you have to remember, dude, he turned pro in 1968. This is 1976, eight years later. And this is his 24th fight, 25th fight. That's pretty inactive. You know what I mean? So I think that it's pretty clear that it's inconsistent. And even against Billy Daniels, dude, he musters a draw, a 10-round draw. And and that's bad because at that point, you shouldn't be fighting a draw with Billy Daniels. No. His record was getting stopped in the first round by most of the guys he was fighting. Yeah, and if you're any good at all, you you, you beat him. Probably what I'm talking about, yeah. Yeah, if you're any good at all, you beat him. And yeah, so I mean, another just kind of shock to the system, I think, dude. And again, getting in and out of trouble, it's going right back into the cycle. Dude, uh, going right back to, I guess, what he knows or what he has to do to make money or whatever. Um, and also his addiction. So, I mean, um, finally, after getting into trouble so many times, he basically earns his way pretty much way into prison for a number of years again. You know what I mean? It's like he can't stay out of the system. Totally. You know, that's when, like you said, you know, he kind of like disappears for a while. And that's when like the mystery of whatever happened to him. His last fight was a card promoted by Bundini Brown who was still around at that point in the early 80s. Ali train had obviously ended. But it was just a nondescript KO, you know, KO went over somebody. And, um, but like you said, yeah, as he went free-falling back into like a, a bunch of drugs and getting in trouble with the law and things of that nature. He would surface around, like, you know, he ended up, I guess, um, in, back in Vegas. His whole family more or less moved to Vegas, right? And um, he ends up over there and he would resurface from time to time. But most notably, we're going to fast forward now to around 1991. Um, in this way, we mentioned earlier about the Jack Newfield book. 
because Newfield, who wrote the scathing expose on Don King, and if you listen to the show, I'm sure that um, you've definitely read the book. Every you know, it's a very, very, very good book that uh, Newfield wrote. One of my favorites, and I've read it cover to cover a few times. I know you have. Like it's anything you want to know about Don King, it's in there. And trust me, it's good because Don King hated it. All right, there's you know the video footage out there of Don King. Um, visibly confronting Newfield, threatening him, screaming at him. Carl King saying to him, and I quote, yelling, I'm not my daddy. I'll kick your fucking ass. And, um, you know, and Newfield, because he was a Brooklyn dude and didn't give a shit and wasn't going to back down from anybody, telling, asking King over and over, why did you take money from South Africa? Asking about the sole person to deal with Sun City. And King is going back and forth with him. I don't need to say anything. You blah, 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 and going, going on and on and on and on and on. So this was all around the time of um, Tyson Razor Ruddick. I'm not sure if it was the first fight or the second fight. Do you know which one it was? Uh, to be honest, I don't know, but it, my guess would be the second, second based right. on just based on like the design of the book and shit like that. But, but I'm not positive. So as he's there, um, you know, Newfield still trying to get info on the book and all that Don King threatened him. Don King's posse threatened to kill him, all this other stuff, people trying to take away his credentials. Um, Newfield comes across of all people, Jeff Merritt, you know, Jeff Merritt was hanging around Vegas at that point. He was outside of a hotel not sure which one it was, but they said he was outside of a hotel. And um, it was very in accounts. A lot of people always said that he looked that he was homeless because he looked it. Um, come to find out that he actually wasn't. I don't know if he was staying with his mother or he was staying with somebody at that point. But, you know, he very look, looked really disheveled, still big as hell, obviously, but he looked disheveled. He looked weak, kind of gaunt, um, no shoes on, dirty, just everything like that. And he was outside the hotel. You know, obviously, where a lot of the boxing people were hanging out and scrummage and stuff like that. And Merrill was over there yelling up and ranting and raving about Don King and talking about who he was and all this stuff. And then at one point, Newfield caught the attention and noticed what was going on and walked up to him and approached him and said, excuse me. And he was, are you Jeff Merritt? And Merritt said, yeah, I'm Candy Slim. Give me a dollar. Which was apparently his his tagline for peddling for money, at least yeah. according to Newfield. That's what he said. He would walk around the people and say, don't you know who I am, man? Don't you remember me? I'm Don King's first fighter. I'm Candy Slim. You know who I am. Give me some money. Brutal, dude. And I mean, I would definitely give him money. If he came up to me, I'm Don King's first fighter, whatever. First off, I'd probably give him a few bucks just to just, you know, to, to calm him down. Then second, I would probably want to ask him some questions to see where his head is at with that, because I'd be curious. Which I think Newfield tried to do as well. Yeah, and it, it sounded like it, he didn't really get too far. Like, yeah. you know, he didn't really get... And it sounded like Merritt was not in a position to... You exactly, know, he was a little out of it by that point. Yeah, yeah properly explain anything. But, but that's that's where the story got fascinating because that was literally the last time anyone had seen him. And then years later, fast forward about, you know, so that happened around 91. Fast forward um, 15 years or so, 15 years later or so. So we're like, you know, in the mid-2000s. And there's a lot of, there's the message boards and there's a lot of like, you know, the, um, the early days of boxing websites out there. And once in a while you would see them, Hey, whatever happened to Jeff Merritt? Anyone knows what happened to Jeff Merritt? Anyone remember Jeff Merritt? And then it would, it would always get a lot of responses. Oh man, I remember Jeff Merritt. Everyone would just be like, God, he was scary as hell. He was doing this. He was doing that. 
And then the whole central theme would be like, what the hell happened to him? No one knew what happened to him, you know? That was always the that was always the main thing. It was kind of like, you know, the last time anyone had seen him or any anyone had heard anything of him was in um was, you know, when Newfield wrote that book. So it was always kind of speculation. Oh, he died years ago. Oh, you know, he got his leg amputated and he's living homeless in Vegas, still peddling money on the streets. Oh, he's living with his family somewhere. He's doing this, he's doing that. Like no one really knew anything. And I, that made me even curious because I wanted to know so much about him. And I couldn't even find that much on his career. Like you'd get the little tidbits and you get like the bullet notes and stuff like that. But I couldn't find anything that was like really substantial and meaty on him, you know? Um, I talked to Steve Farhood about him a little bit. And Steve actually, I believe, was ringside the night that Merritt, you know, ravaged Ernie Terrell at the Garden. And he talked about how scary and intimidating it was. And shows you how far back Steve goes, right? And um, so there was like people I would talk to and they all talked about him, like, you know, saying, yeah, he had the potential and he was really crazy. But you never, no one really knew like a lot. He was shrouded in mystery. So I'm thankful now these past few years, it finally seems like the fucking peel, the, the, the layers of the onion are starting to be peeled off, you know? People started finding, oh, oh, he actually was still alive. He didn't die. Oh, he was, yes, he was still in bad shape, but he was doing X, Y, and Z, you know, out in Vegas. Okay, here's other parts of his career we weren't aware of. Here's this, here's that. And then here we are today. Yeah, and <clears throat> I there's really not much, like you said. Uh, overall, it seems like, for the most part, he was kind of a forgotten character. Um, and it was actually that article by Steve Compton. He seems to put together some of the pieces. Um, it sounds like he did some interviews. So he did do some legwork on this. I don't want to, you know, discount that at all. According to Steve Compton, though, uh, Jeff Merritt was arrested for like the final time in 1998 because it was just like, dude, you've got like a billion arrests in your life. You're just going to go to prison now. You're criminal. And, and so he was sent to prison. And then while in prison, he suffered a stroke. And if that happens, generally, like they would just sooner release you because then they have to take care of you, and then that costs money. I mean, yeah, who, who sounds cynical, that, but that's right? just that's just the fucking truth. <laughs> so uh, they a lot they let him out of prison, and in in 2014, I guess his condition had devolved to the point where he was needing constant care by his sister, which is you know a common story, unfortunately, as well in boxing. And he finally passed away in 2014 in June. Um, and I mean, so not necessarily, you know, he, he definitely did not go out with a roar. He went out with more of a whisper, unfortunately, uh, definitely not the, the way that he fought needless to say, but that's kind of the story of Jeff Merritt, dude, where he just faded out. And it's, and it stinks too, because, you know, there's been a resurgence in recent years with guys in the media going out and doing interviews with, um, with various like forgotten boxing people like we can you know Tris Dixon has done like this podcast that he's done that uh, you know focusing on a lot of guys forgotten guys and um a lot of other people have done that as well hell we talk about them all the time on our show um and it stinks because a guy like Merritt would have been perfect to to reminisce about his career to get interviewed about you know what I mean like a person like Leroy Codwell who's been completely forgotten about a heavyweight journeyman that fought a who's who of everybody 
Um, you can find interviews with him now online. Uh, you can find interviews with um, Edwin Virouette online. You can find interviews with all these other guys from the past that are kind of been forgotten, but people sometimes seek them out and be like, hey, let's talk about your career. And they're more than willing to because who the hell has wanted to talk to them for the past 30 years, you know? And if Merritt, you know, had kept him, had got himself together and, you know, had stayed healthy over the years or whatever, I think he would have been an absolutely fascinating subject to talk about. You know, considering all the people, all the players he was involved in, all the people he was involved in, the different yeah. things he was involved with in his career. My God, man, he could have wrote a book on this shit. You know, you you tell me this shit more more than once a year, but it especially comes around when International Boxing Hall of Fame week comes around. That it's important to talk to these people while they're here. That it's important it to meet them to meet them while they're here, and it's important to get their stories while they can still tell them. Um, and similarly extending out to the non-champions like Jeff Merritt, like a Leroy Caldwell, you know, the guys who saw a ton and who would really help fill in the pieces and whose stories are really no less important than a lot of these other celebrities. They just have different stories to tell. You know, the stories that uh, Jeff Merritt could tell in 2022. You fucking kidding me, bro. You know, just, it would be unreal, dude. The, the type of stuff that he's seen and that he went through. Uh, not even, not even necessarily boxing related, just the life experience, bro. Totally. So yeah, it it sucks that he, you know, went out as he did. I guess he would have been born around 1947 or so, because there's not a birth date on his box rec page. But so he would have been what is late 70s today, early 80s or so. Yeah, Close he'd to... have been like he would have been. Uh, well, so let's see, 1947, uh, 75. Yeah. ish so i mean you know well, larry holmes's age you know for yeah, not young but i mean certainly not fucking decrepit and into most human beings still in a state to be able to communicate and to, you know totally. so yeah it's it's unfortunate that he went out the way that the way that he did and if nothing else the things that we talk about and the fighters that we talk about should also illustrate that we need to do a better job of taking care of fighters when they're on the downside of their career, on the other side of their career and Absolutely. remembering fighters, you know, and I mean, we're doing about as much as we can given our circumstances, but it's, it's important to remember these guys. It's true. And ladies. Yes. Yes. Not to, not to get too much of a, like a downer over here, but like when I was home a couple of weeks ago and I had a pair of boxing gloves hanging in my room that I got, at the that I, I got autographed at the hall of fame we're talking like 2001 right and i'm looking at that i'm looking at those gloves and i was going through the names and i realized now and it actually hit me i was like holy shit i didn't even think about it dude 95 percent of the guys that signed those gloves are gone of the people that signed those gloves have since passed away like yeah they're all gone, you know famous former champions contenders referees trainers you name it, whoever signed it, like most of them are gone. You know what I mean? Like that's how this it's, it is what it is. And it's like, yeah, you got to take the time out. You got to reach out to these people. And you don't know, you know, I go on box rec and I see a lot of these guys today and I'll, I'll look at their records and they were still active, like in the early eighties and whatever. So I'm like, Oh, are they still around? Then you find out they passed away in 2017, 2018, 2019. And it's like, damn it. You know, you just missed it. And you're like, too bad. I couldn't hear their story. Like a dude like Ron Stander. I don't know. I never actively looked up for his interviews. I know I'm probably sure he was interviewed, from, but like, look at how many dudes he fought and all the career he went through. And he had a long ass career that lasted up until like 1980, 81 or so, you know, the stories he could tell about the shit he was doing. So it's like, yeah, <clears throat> well, 
you know, obviously there's nothing we can do about the fighters who are gone except for tell their stories. Exactly. I think we're doing, I think we're doing a hell of a job, hopefully. (laughs) But they're, but yeah, like you said, like I said, there are fighters who are still here. So it's good to hear their stories. Like you said, Triz Dixon, he's doing a really good job of making sure that many of these fighters stories are told. But yeah, dude, I, I appreciate you uh you know coming together with me and trying to make sure that these fighters legacies what whatever remains of them stay alive and that people know about them dude thank you for sure holy man it's blessed all right well everybody thank you so much if you listened in uh on the podcast go ahead and subscribe whichever podcast app or website you wind up listening through we appreciate that but also if you watched on youtube subscribe and say hello leave a comment try to respond and also as far as social media goes the knuckles and gloves podcast is on social media like facebook and instagram but we're also on twitter knuckles and gloves because you know character limit what do you want me to do but individually we're also there my buddy eris pina is there on twitter as punch zone eris I'm there on Twitter as Patrick M. Connor. So say hello. We'll say hi back. And Eris, we'll talk soon, bro. Have a good one, y'all. Later, buddy. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.